Shit Platypus Says, episode 53. Hello, and welcome to a new 2023 episode of Shit Platypus Says. My name is Pamela Nogales. I am one of your co-hosts. This episode of SPS comes in two parts. In the first, my co-host Rebecca and Lisa are joined by our members Lori Rojas and Jasper to talk about how Platypus has captured the relationship between the left and the elections. To that end, they have all gone into the archives, into the archives of the Platypus Affiliated Society or Public Fora, our articles in the Platypus Review, and have asked how our work in Platypus can help us to think about these inflection points on the left across the elections, namely 2008 with Obama, 2016 with Brexit and Trump and the IFD, 2020 with Corbyn and Boris and Trump and Biden, and today in the lead up to the 2024 presidential elections and other elections that are looming on everyone's mind. In the second segment, I sit down with our Platypus Review Editor-in-Chief, Lou. He and I talk about what's in the December-January 2023 issue, including but not exclusively about the interview with Vivek Schiber, taking up his new book, His Perspectives, on ideology and the tasks of the left in the present, the DSA and the elections, as well as a book review by Russell Jacoby on the online version of the Platypus Review. Spicy stuff if you've not read it. If you've not picked up a copy of the Platypus Review, it is free to read online. If you do not have a campus chapter around you, you can always access it at platypus1917.org. That is the word platypus, followed by the numerals 1917.org. If you like the podcast, share it. And as always, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts so that you could spread the word. Yeah, a lot of platypus in this episode, a lot of conversations by and with Platypus members, so hope that you get an insight into what that sounds like these days. Here we go. So welcome to our second Platypus Archive segment, where we continue to ask how we as an educational project can make sense of all the material we have recorded and published during the more than 15 years of Platypus. To do this, one of our founding members, Laurie, and our very new member, Jasper, met with Rebecca and me to dive into our archive. In face of the coming 2024 election, which will be ramping up in 2023, we all went over a selection of Platypus panel discussions, PR articles, and podcast episodes to ask what have we captured of the relationship between the left and the elections? How can we think about inflection points on the left, namely 2008, Obama, 2016, AfD, Brexit and Trump, 
2020, Corbyn, Boris, Trump, Biden, and today. And how can this help us to orient our activity in the upcoming election in 2024? Our longtime listeners and friends of the show know exactly who Laurie is. She's a former co-host of the SPS podcast. And yeah, nice to have you here. <laughs> Welcome back, Laurie. Thank you. Thank you, guys. I'm very happy to be here. Let's go um, into the first question that I would prompt to you, Laurie. So Platypus itself is a millennial left project that started in 2006. And we have organizationally experienced Bush as a president, Obama, Trump, and now Biden. So what has changed with and during these presidencies? <laughs> um, maybe not much has changed, uh, but <laughs> I feel like after every election, I feel like not much has actually changed. I feel compelled today, given uh, the dive into the archive that we've done in order to talk to each other, I feel more of this intense sense of, of continuity and repetition, even though um, these um, inflection points actually look very, very different. I was politicized during the anti-war movement like many of the founding members of Platypus. And that was, yeah, during the Bush presidency. And one of the things that like obviously did not surprise me under Trump was to call him fascist and the Trump with the Hitler mustache. I obviously saw that with Bush. Bush, Hitler mustache, Bush at um, the anti-war protests. And of course, an older member of Platypus would say that the same thing, you know, was done with Reagan and Nixon, etc. So the fear mongering that happens around election time by the Democrats and the left in support of it, or the left, perhaps even in the vanguard of this approach of uh, screaming fascism, uh, in order to to feed these leftist discontents into the Democratic Party. There's a deep history of that that even precedes Platypus, but we certainly uh, can see it uh, from the Bush in our own lifetime, in the life, meaning in the lifetime of Platypus, we can see it from Bush to Trump as well. Yeah, we've witnessed several elections, and not only these big elections, uh, and moments like Brexit, moments like the rise of the AFD, um, but also the midterm elections. And one of the things that your question prompted me to think about, I was like, well, actually, like a big election was the 2010 midterm elections where like it was all about the Tea Party. This was the time where I was an internet donation, right? And it was all about voter suppression. So also like the claims of voter suppression, the Democrats pushing voter suppression, their concerns over voter suppression has been there before the crazy 2020 election. Yeah, we have a lot of repeating issues, I think, but the, the continuity is that no matter how much the left wants to be independent of electoral politics, it ends up succumbing to the Democratic Party propaganda and becoming, quote unquote, the left wing of the Democratic Party. And in essence, this sort of continuous provider of a younger generation of Democrat voters and campaigners. And this includes anarchists, <laughs> like um, it really like swept everybody in. And uh, we saw that wave uh, in the collapse of the SDS uh, and all the activism around the SDS into the Obama election. And we saw that wave with the collapse of the millennial left, specifically, you know, the DSA, everybody getting on the Bernie Sanders bandwagon and then simply the anti-Trump bandwagon and in trying to ensure a democratic presidential candidate. 
I, I guess something I, I kind of want to push here or ask is kind of what are the stakes that we're dealing with when it comes to asking questions about the left and elections? So as part of the archive dive, I went back to a teach-in given by Clint Montgomery and David Faze over anti-Trumpism and the 2016 election. They're kind of like raising this question of like, well, actually, what does it mean for the left? And it's actually following on from maybe the most infamous article that Platypus has published by Chris Kutrin, of course, the... Why not Trump? Why not Trump? Yeah, that's the one. And I think for me, that was... I I can probably like put my finger on the moment I was, I got platypus was the moment that I understood the article and what it was trying to do. Well, I think it's important to add, meaning the the line about the mendacity of the Democratic Party, you know, the lies that they have to perpetuate, the emotional manipulation that comes with, with those lies is, is very powerful, meaning I, I would still remember the Me Too movement and the use, you know, as a form of anti-Trumpism in many ways, the emotional abuse that comes with these mendacious lies that just gets everyone quite scared and worried and psychologically affected. That means that they can't even really seriously read an article that is not really about Trump, that's about the Democratic Party and the less relationship to the Democratic Party. That's critical. But it's such a taboo to raise that specter in the middle of an election where anything but Trump was what was needed. And the only way to get through the anything by Trump is by some very intense emotional manipulation. I went back to an article from Chris Catrone named Obama, Progress and Regress, the end of black politics from 2008. And I have a little quote here. It goes... People on the left respond to Obama in ambivalent ways through idealization or demonization, but neither is appropriate or realistic, and both are equally hysteric in character. The problem that Obama presents for the left is that they cannot decide whether they really want him or rather fear what he might represent, the obsolescence of their politics. Even Reed, Adolf Reed, um, evinces this effect, and... I have the feeling that this um, obsolescence in 2008 with Obama came full circle in 2016 with Trump and Sanders, who really marked or demasked the left as complete irrelevant um, and completely bound to the Democratic Party in 2016. So the hysterics behind Obama in 2008, positive and negative both ways, they came full circle in the figures of Trump and Sanders in 2016. So this goes back to the continuity and change in a way um, that, Laurie, you mentioned uh, before. So we have the article, the, the Millennial Left is Dead, in 2017, where Platypus encountered that the Millennial Left is really only the um, vanguard of the Democratic Party as it played out in 2016, while in 2008 there seems to be at least a possibility of refiguring out the purpose of the millennial left, or how would you say it? Well, what that brought to mind was just the memory of how long it took for people to digest, to accept 
the millennial left is dead piece. Like that was kind of more of a slow burn one. It was ahead of its time in many ways. I mean, why not Trump like hit <laughs> hit at like a, a really key moment? It was like the beginning of the school year on in 2016. Um, but the millennial left is dead came very ahead of its time. And I think a lot of people um, ignored it intentionally didn't want to admit it. It seemed like the DSA was still peaking or something. Um, and meaning 2022, like it's clear, like the biggest <laughs> clear loser where the, is the progressive last this year, uh, I would say. And uh, it's it's very clear now what was recognized um, by Chris in that moment. Can I, can I push you a little bit on this? So again, kind of like looking back on the kind of 2017, 2019 moment for myself, I was remembering how at that time I was listening a lot to the Jacobin podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the... Which, by the way, is done. Talk about example of 2022 being like... <laughs> sorry, but right, they canceled. The, it's done. The Jacobin podcast is over. They've canceled it a few months ago. Well, well, this is where I want to push back. Well, or not, or not push back, but what I want to highlight. So at the time, so it was 2020... And I think it was Amber Frost. Likely. It was Amber Frost, Baskar Sankara, and a couple other hosts from the Jacobin podcast. It was a live show. And they were talking about how 2020 was the year for Bernie Sanders. And I really remember, I think it was either Baskar or Amber. Willful delusion, man. Wishful thinking. Well, I remember they were saying when I was a kid... I was always taught that the Democratic Party was the graveyard of social movements. And this is the year we're going to prove them wrong. Um, And then it was like a month later, Bernie loses the primaries. But that being said, I think what I wanted to highlight was that at that point, for me, that was the millennial left. And it seemed so vivid and so energetic. Chris's article, The Death of the Millennial Left, like really, I was kind of like, what do you mean it's dead? Right. When you're reading this in 2019 or 2020, early 2020, but really it's like 2018, 2019. You're like, the DSA is growing. There's like a momentum for Bernie to get him to be like the presidential nominee for 2020. Like how how, the millennial left seems like more alive than ever. And now it's kind of like, it feels it's death knell, right? And, And which we kind of saw in like this year's convention in a bit. Like there's a lot of panelists that, um, picked up on this idea that the millennial left is dead and they're like well yeah now it's dead right we we put in all our energy into bernie bernie lost and it was all a mistake which is easy to say now some people might not like me pointing but the death of millennial left was written in 2017 when it was truly it was like when they were recruiting like insane amount of people month to month it wasn't 2019 like the moment that i think you might be describing uh, of that jacobin podcast which they are trying to perhaps have some critical reflection. I think we can grant Baskar Sankara at least an attempt to do that, at least I would say uh, in the last year or two, but with a lot of limitations. Um, But the death of millennial left was, you know, like the height of the DSA in 2017. And can you explain why? Like, why is that a death? And and what is it that we're trying to capture when, when calling it a death? I think precisely in their incredible support for Bernie Sanders and the Democratic Party. 
and their illusions that it's, meaning I would say their illusions that they ever thought that the Democratic Party was ever going to let Bernie Sanders be the nominee to begin with, right? That they thought that that was possible, that they thought, like as we covered a lot in this podcast during that time, right? That somehow the Democratic Party was an empty shell that was ready for the picking, ready for them to take over and not really uh, taking into account or trying to ignore and say, well, this proves that like, you know, the Democratic Party is not the graveyard of the left, right? It's it's the hardest moment to see it when it's speaking, but it was speaking exactly with regards to its relationship to the Democratic Party and precisely in its anti-Trumpism. And then there's also the question of what the left actually means. Even if Sanders were to win, it's like, what does that actually mean contra the historical horizons of the left, right? It's it's liquidating the term socialism into Bonapartism, social democracy, in a way that obscures a lot of like the contentions of this history. I guess it would have still been like it might have been a different lesson to have it in the face, but it would have probably taken much longer. Like if Bernie would have been the nominee and Bernie would have won against Trump, which yes, it's very possible that Bernie could have won against Trump. Like I feel like it would have just taken longer to take this lesson that hopefully has now been taken about the Democratic being the the graveyard of leftist movements. And that it would have been another way of confronting that problem with the highest potentiality ever granted to that being proven wrong, uh, then, you know, it would have definitely still been another form of killing any sense of socialism. Uh, It would have definitely just been pure enthusiasm for the Democratic Party through and through that would have ended up being disappointing, I have no doubt. Trump winning, Bernie not being able to run again in 2020, uh, which was, again, like, I could not believe it back then. And I certainly could not believe it when <laughs> when I heard it again, their hopes for Bernie running in 2024. Um, as you rightfully pointed out, Rebecca, during our Platypus convention this year, that basically it would have been a longer path to having this recognition, I think. Uh, and instead, uh, it just happened to be a bigger blow. Uh, it came faster. So maybe it is better for the left, you could say. Uh, Bernie Sanders would have just delayed things. But I think no matter what, the lesson is not being digested uh, much beyond platypus circles. So this might all sound already like ancient history, maybe to new members, the 2016 election or Trump. And I would be interested, Jasper, what you, how you encountered all this stuff um, as a new member, for me, I was like sixteen when Sanders, when the Sanders movement was ar- arising, and it politicized me as well in some way, as well as as Corbyn did. Also, the lesson that this is the graveyard did uh, politicize me in the way that I I went to Platypus because there is the recognition of this death. The question I I, I have is like, okay. Maybe uh, when Sanders would uh, have been elected, this this would have been delayed the lesson. But maybe then the lesson would be more intensive. Because now this question would not appear. And maybe my, my question would also be like, the US is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, 
actor in global capitalist politics and economy. What I want to maybe put back to Jasper is, you know, on on a more historical level, what Brexit, what Trump and the kind of left wing phenomena, concurrent phenomena, so like Corbyn and Sanders are representing is this kind of shift in politics, which is responding to um, the crisis of neoliberalism in 2008. Uh Um, And I think we're still in a moment where that that transformation is is working itself out has the archive and what we've been able to capture about american and uk politics in platypus and the left's response to that informed our activity in germany and understanding the particular way that the left has responded to the changes in german politics over the past 10 15 years but particularly since kind of 2015-2016? I mean, the archive and the reflection through Platypus, I think the most important thing is that 2006 was politicizing, 2008 was it, then Occupy, and in Germany, AFD, the refugee crisis. In some way, it seems like everything has changed. In some way, nothing changed. And especially this, um, in Germany, Die Linke is a product of, uh, of neoliberalism. And I think now that um, the Linke is will disappear, maybe it seems so. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, meaning might not disappear, but certainly has <laughs> what it gambled on has not worked out. Yeah, and the, the Linke will disappear or become ir- ir- irrelevant, as same as uh, neoliberalism will disappear in some way. So. The task of, of this kind of left is fulfilled by being the, the opposition of neoliberal politics. And this is what Platypus in some way reflected all of these changes, changes through the times. Yeah, that's great. I think um, the question that I ask myself all the time is how can we help to think politically about the elections? So one of the problems seems to me Um, to be that people don't really know what politics means and how it plays out in our present. So the contemporary left has not been a good teacher in present real politics. And I mean, how could it be otherwise? So the way they look at the present and at their history points to the task they put themselves for the future. And as it turned out, the millennial left became the virtuous defender of the status quo. But I think it it is a great mistake that was made to capture the phenomena, the political phenomena of AfD, Trump, Sanders, as a matter of racism, Islamophobia, or fascism, or whatever, instead of seeing it as a political answer to a social crisis, to, to point to a change in capitalism, to point to the flexibility of capitalism, in a way. So um, the left became really the last defender of neoliberalism um, or the last defender of something that is already gone. So it is not even... So the left should be ahead of the curve, but is really the last man in the line (laughs) recognizing um, and, and praying to go back. So the question... Also about the election year 2020, what was 2020? I have the feeling it's the melancholy 
to go back to something that was before Trump. So let's go back to Obama, even if it means that we should elect Joe Biden. I think it said that in the Why Not Trump article, but this idea of the left being the last kind of virtuous defenders of the status quo. Can you go a bit more into that and maybe why kind of in our activity Platypus would come to that conclusion? And that's maybe an open question. Yeah, I mean, what, what the article Why Not Trump does represent is in a way how the social crisis forces capitalism to change. So we do need to change something, whether we want it or not. So the the social crisis does force Bonapartism to change, at least policies. And Trump is an expression of this phenomena of change, as well as Sanders was. And this is what, what the article does also address, is that Trump was in a way more successful than, than Sanders was, because Trump really had to fight against the core um, of the Republican Party and Sanders collapsed into into the, the base of the Democratic Party. In a way, Trump is a, is a clear expression of the political change that needs to be done anyways, whether we want it or not, whether we, are, we desire this change or not. For better or worse, For better or worse that's what it is. We, it, it will come, um, but the question is, do we want to lose sight in it? Do we want to bury ourselves in thought taboos and catastrophism and hysteria? Or do we want to have clear eyes and sober senses to grasp our reality? Grasp at least the, the hardness of capitalist politics. I mean, it's, it's really a bad business, but one has to understand what's going on there. And it's not white supremacy or racism or Islamophobia. Um, I think this really does um, minimize the importance of how much this does tell us something about the present, as less as we can grasp without a movement or without a party. One thing I'd like to add, um, because when we had the discussion um, after the reading circle, we confronted um, um, the others with the argument that, okay, so voting for Biden is just to pick the less evil, and this is not enough for the left. And then he said, like, he, he, he um, gave me the Lenin question, question, what to do. My answer to him was like, okay, we shouldn't ask what to do, but rather what not to do. And in, in this way, maybe it's simple or it's easier for us to understand how should the left behave in these times. You know, what is to be done question if it's going to be asked would be here sort of like the necessary independence of the left of these political parties and maybe even the question uh, that was raised during the quote-unquote spike in socialism or the spike in interest in socialism question like what is socialism what kind of socialist party would be required an independent socialist maybe even Socialist Workers Party, which interestingly, it's not even in the air anymore. I guess like the the, the DSA moment, it be- became a clearer moment of the necessity of an independent Socialist Party. And now in the malaise of the exhaustion of all of these intense elections of the post-COVID moment, that seems to have fallen off the wayside, like the relevance of socialism which, again, for better or worse, perhaps, 
uh, with regards to the collapse of the DSA and Jacobin, uh, or even not the collapse, at least the falling into irrelevance. Well, it's weird because um, a phenomena that we're now kind of capturing at the moment, kind of in our, you know, in our platypus activity at the moment, at least in what I saw in the recent panel in the UK and during our European convention, what we are seeing is this phenomena of leftists using this current economic crisis as a way to kind of rescind responsibility for building a party, right? So the party question's appearing, but not in terms of election, but in terms of kind of like social change within a moment of crisis or social survival. And it's maybe this more anarchisty turn. I mean, I don't, I don't really know what we'd call it. But also trade union. There's a lot of trade union stuff or claims of. Right. But I think also this moment of like this crisis will spur the working class or spur the people or the workers into creating a revolution. The catastrophism. But history has taught us that the, the left or the working class does not rise in moments of economic despair at all. And it, and it feels strange, like having this after a very like highly politicized moment, like because this idea of like a working class movement is feels a lot more divorced from electoralism or politics in a way that you wouldn't a couple of years ago. It was strange during this panel. So this other panel I revisited, which I think was the first platypus panel I ever attended, was in Goldsmith's 2019 Democracy in the Left. But really, it was trying to reflect on like the Brexit moment, at least in the UK. That's kind of like in, t- in two ways. Brexit was like... This moment that spurred what does democracy even look like or mean, right? Is a referendum democratic? And what would it mean if a referendum from the perspective of like the results of the referendum from the perspective of the left is reactionary? Um, But then also the question of like the democratic institution of the EU. During this panel, Benjamin Studebaker, who I think is the only American on the panel, while everyone else is kind of reflecting on Corbyn and Brexit, he brings up Sanders. He thought that there's an opportunity for party capture, right, in in this moment. And he says, like, the left has an opportunity to infiltrate the shell of the Democratic Party and introduce progressive leaders and gain state power through that, or at least power within the Democratic institutions. And that feels so different, just like that idea of, like, working within political institutions or in an elections um, and having, like, a party that could represent the workers is just so feels so different from this current moment, which will be interesting to see like how that reemerges in 2024. Right. It's like, so like refracted through this deep period of depoliticization. Maybe we've already kind of had that with 2020 where people were already kind of depoliticized, but not, not really. I mean, even this, the midterms were felt really underwhelming. No one was really willing to talk about the midterm elections um, at least from a leftist perspective, it was kind of like it happened and people were like, Ugh. <laughs> you know, um, and I and I wonder if 2024 will kind of feel like that as well. Um, maybe it will depend if Trump is running again. I don't know. But what would it mean looking ahead? Like as people investigating and trying to make palpable the death of the left, how, how should we use this archive and what we've learned in the past 15 years to record the left's reaction as best we can in 2024 and keep a, a level head. Elections can be like just super divisive and hysterical. 
Yeah, meaning I guess we'll see a repetition of that, unfortunately. It's what we've been saying. But I do think some key things have changed. Well, once again, the Democrats have no one of real validity at the moment, hence the desperate attempt to call for Bernie one more time. And I think that the Republican Party is still in crisis just as much as the Democratic Party is still in crisis. But there is going to be a real contender to Trump with Ron DeSantis in Florida. What we have is this idea that Ron DeSantis is Trump with a prettier face or, you know, a more acceptable Trump that people can, you know, are not as disgusted by or something. So things will look a little bit different because of Ron DeSantis. Still, when it comes to international policy and pushing, Trump was much more interesting at least to say, and the fact that he didn't start a single war, and that we also have the ongoing Ukraine war to add to this fold, and the Democratic Party saying, meaning Biden saying, we will support you as long as it takes. Uh, I think that those factors are going to make things a little bit different coming in 2024, but I think bigger than anything is the problem of inflation and the the recession that has been kicked down the road is really going, it's expected to hit next year and really still be ongoing or only barely recovering. Could be that the, the Democrats just fall into the same fear mongering around identity politics uh, that we've seen because they have nothing else. Uh, but it also could be that they start thinking about things a little bit differently. Some last words here on. Um, so what can we do? What um, is the task that we as Platypus members can do to prepare and to face all this stuff with uh, sober senses? I think the, the, um, one of the main tasks should be to, to prevent ourselves and the people who are listening to Platypus or reading Platypus um, to forget the last 20 years that... Um, Okay, that's difficult in English, but the pathological forgetting, maybe, yeah. of everything that the left has done over the last 20 years, maybe. And that always seems now, like, now everything is uh, different, now we have to have to act. Um, but, uh, you know, the politicization through Obama and so on, it leads to Biden. And in, I don't know, in Germany, it leads to, to Die Grüne <laughs> in the Bundestag. And uh, yeah, I think as Splatibus and uh, um, with the archive, this uh, should be important. Yeah, meaning I think that it's to keep doing what we're doing, meaning a big part of that is fighting against historical amnesia. And that's, that's a real one that has always been part of this project. I'm feeling very self-reflective at the moment, but kind of as a project, I think Platypus would describe itself as Orthodox Marxist. Mm, but that can mean a lot of things. It can mean a lot of things. And and I'm saying like, we could be wrong, could be completely wrong. I don't think so. that's why I'm still Platypus. I, I think we're pretty good at upholding historical Marxism, right? So it's kind of like, that's why we have the reading group. We go through the canon. We try to curate and pick out the most vital, critical parts of Marxism and use that as the horizon line for what the left can be. What is the task of the left in the transformation of society? And when did we most grasp it, right? Which is why the website is called Platypus 1917, right? That is the high watermark of the left's 
exercise of political power for social transformation. Part of the project of Platypus is maybe to make people confess that those are just not horizons we have anymore. And to confess their kind of conservative social democratic tendencies um, in a way that might make politics a lot easier for them, right? Like giving up the title of Marxism is going to be so much easier if you can admit your own conservatism, right? So what does this have to do with like elections, right? I think maybe it's like this idea that there are still Marxists, kind of like self-identifying Marxists and leftists um, who will view being a pressure group on the like for the Democratic Party or the next vanguard for a quote-unquote left-wing capitalist mainstream party. You know, the, the, the left will kind of like use different ways to liquefy itself into these movements over and over again and regret it and then still do it over and over again. And I think maybe the question that we still need to pose is like, these are the historical horizons. Do you actually believe in them? Do you think it's possible? And if so, do you think, how important do you think it is to have like independent political institutions like a party to realize that, right? And if you do think that's important, let's investigate the phenomena of, for example, anti-Trump hysteria, anti-Bush hysteria um, with a level head, right? And view these not as like monsters or you know, they might be monsters, but in this way that like, capitalism in crisis is a monster. What Lisa was saying previously was, I think, really important that it's like, these are changes in capitalism, and we need to be able to see them with clear eyes, and not kind of fall for the Charlie Brown football of like, hysteria, anti-fascism, that has that has like, tricked us for the past, like, repeatedly, every election cycle. Yeah, every every change in capitalism has been seen as fascist. Yeah, I, I do want to bring a quote from um, The Millennial Left is Dead. Yes, come on, Lisa. The Millennial Left has been subject to the triple knockout of Obama, Sanders and Trump. The Millennial Left was not defeated by Bush, Obama, Hillary or Trump. No, they have consistently defeated themselves. They failed to ever even become themselves as something distinctly new and different, but instead continued the same old 1980s modus operandi inherited from the failure of the 1960s new left. Trump has rendered them finally irrelevant. That they are now winding up in the 1980s vintage DSA as the big tent that is the swamp of activists and academics on the left fringe of the Democratic Party moving right is the logical result. They will scramble to elect Democrats in 2018 and to unseat Trump in 2020. Likely they will fail at both, as the Democrats as well as the Republicans must adapt to changing circumstances, however in opposition to Trump, but with Trump the Republicans at least have a head start on making the necessary adjustments. Nonetheless, the millennial leftists are ending up as Democrats. They've given up the ghost of the left, whose memory haunted them from the beginning. The millennial left is dead. So, let's survive the death of the millennial left. Here, here. <laughs> 
Thanks for coming on, guys. Was such a great discussion with you. And um, thanks for doing this archive uh, dive, really. Whenever you want me on for the archive, happy to do it. Come on, Lori. Yes, Lori. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you guys, happy new year. Hope we all survive 2023. We will. <laughs> and, but, you know, but we will. But we will. was built for this right <laughs> i wish so it's on us it's on us it is thanks jasper for coming on yeah no problem it was a pleasure happy new year bye guys Hello. Hi. I am here with Lou, who is the editor-in-chief of the Platypus Review, our fora in print. This is a little segment on what is in our December-January issue, Platypus Review number 152. You can find the Platypus Review in any city where there is a chapter. So look at your local universities, and if you are wondering whether or not it's in your town, you can check the website to see if there's a chapter near you. So, Lou, what's in this issue? First, I'll tell you about the interviews. We have Platypus member D.L. Jacobs doing an interview with Vivek Chibber. That one's called Confronting Capitalism. And it's named after uh, one of Vivek Chibber's newest books, um, the other one being The Class Matrix, which we'll talk about in a second. The next interview is We Were Orphans, an interview with Enzo Traverso by uh, Noah Spore. Both D.L. Jacobs and Noah Spore are Platypus members. Then we have two book reviews. We have a book review of Adolf Reed Jr.'s uh, new book, The South, and that's uh, by John Garvey. The title is Popular Front Radicalism. Then we have, uh, speaking of Chibber's book, The Class Matrix, we have Russell Jacobi reviewing that with a book review called Shadow Boxing. It's spicy. <laughs> Finally, we have a republication of a piece by Karl Korsch, which originally came out in German in 1922, and then was, uh, for the last time, published in English in 1924 by the Australian Communist Party's mm. journal, uh, Weekly Worker. We uh, uncovered it in the Australian Library's archives and uh, prepared it for republication. That's very cool. Did our Australian members run into that, or how did that come about? I'm not sure exactly how it came about, but it was indeed the work of our Australian members who uh, who hunted it down. Natalia Antonova, Shane Hopkinson, and Liam Kenny uh, found it. Oh, great. So that's the table of contents of the issue. Two of those articles are in the print edition of the Platypus Review, Confronting Capitalism, the interview with Vivek Shiver, and We Were Orphans, the interview with Enzo Traverso. The other three articles are on the online edition only. All of them 
are on the online edition. So in case you can't get a hold of the print edition, you can read that online at platypus1917.org. So the Confronting Capitalism interview with Vivek Shibber, I thought was really excellent. And uh, Shibber, he appears to be like a very important theoretician for the Democratic Socialist of America. And reading the interview gave me a better understanding of the tactical positioning that DSA members take on the engagement with the Democratic Party. And it helped me deepen my own understanding of that move. So I thought maybe we could chat about that and and then move on to the Enzo Traverso. That sounds good. Yeah, um, I agree. Vivek Chivers definitely uh, seems to be an, an important figure. You know, he, as the introduction to the interview points out, he is the editor in chief of Jacobin's journal, theoretical uh, journal Catalyst, a journal of theory and strategy. And he's written uh, often for uh, Jacobin. I'm glad that that we were able to talk with him because there is, as you said, explicit talk about what it means to orient towards the Democratic Party of the United States. And of course, like the dangers of that, um, that in a sense, it feels it's it seems to be the only game in town. But then there are these dangers of simply being captured or um, being a funnel, you know, into the Democratic Party. From the perspective of Shiver, it seems like the danger is, in fact, the greater danger in the interview. Uh, he presents its ultra leftism, right? So the dangers of identifying oneself politically against the Democratic and the Republican Party is that you end up in some kind of mythical la-la land of the dictatorship of the proletariat and overcoming the state and the abolition of wage. And that this is um, a very marginal perspective, maybe getting traction with some esoteric student groups, but really disconnected from the working class, right? And one has to be, right. according to Schiber, embedded in the working class. And so the question is, if Schiber insists that one has to be embedded in the working class, what is the relationship that he believes the left ought to have with the Democratic Party that somehow helps the left be embedded in the working class? Right. And speaking of that embeddedness within the working class and how to talk about them and think about about this relationship, you know, Vivek Chibber points out that one must approach them in such a way that their immediate interests and their long-term interests are the same Mm -hmm. or made to appear the same, which is an interesting way of understanding it. It's a bit one-sided or causal. What I mean by that is that not to simply throw throw a wrench into um, Chipper's argument, but part of the reason one might need a party for the sake of retaining historical experience is that one's immediate interests in the world, in fact, might not be consonant with uh, one's long-term interests. Socialism. Yes, that's right. That getting a pay raise at your job and overcoming of wage labor, you know, are two different things. I think that Danny raises that question. Um, you know, he says, Rosa Luxemburg's point was you need historical knowledge of the final goal in order to actually prompt people to potentially do things that are not immediately in their interest and might be very costly. But historically, this goal has played a role in organizing millions of people, right? That's right. And his response to that is to say, well, actually, 
no. Like the relationship between the immediate and long-term interests must be harmonious. But at one point when Danny says, isn't there a possibility that in the future there could be the abolition of the state? Shiver seems to say, yes, like we don't know. He calls it the mythical future, in which case that quote-unquote rupture would have to happen at some point. But he's not willing to engage any dialogue about that now because he thinks that it just feeds the ultra-leftism. So he, I think he kind of doubles down on the historical task of what he understands to be the historical task of the present, which is to expand working class organizations, build the working class organizations. And this is where he gets into this tactical relationship to the Democratic Party, which is that you need the Democratic Party in order to build legislation that can strengthen working class organization. Right. Jacobs brings up the point, you know, that it matters who does it. In other words, is a wage increase going to happen because of the efforts of the workers or because it's a handout of the Democratic Party? Right. The two things might be the same in terms of numbers, but qualitatively are different. Right. Shiver tries to bait Danny to a certain extent by making him choose between reform and this ultra leftism of like the immediate abolition of wages. And Danny says, I'm not arguing for one against the other. And I wouldn't put it at the level of minimum wage versus the abolition of wages, he would put it in terms of a question of who organizes the wage. That is, there is a difference between a wage increase from unions versus legislations. Okay, and his answer was like slightly puzzling to me because he's shivers. He says, you know, we have to recognize the historical discontinuity between the early 20th century and the present, where you'd have the strength of the unions, working class, like relative autonomy and organization to now, which we have to quote unquote, look at soberly. What is the president for collective bargaining in units like small cafes, fast food restaurants, etc., across the country? And he talks about how the informal labor market would have to be organized and that we need to look to the third world for um, potential examples of this. And for all of that, he says, you need legislation in order to organize those people. So there seems to be a specificity of the subject of the worker by Vivek saying that you have this precarious labor and that you need to organize this precarious labor. And then in order to do so, you need some kind of legislative reform without which you can't actually build organizations of the working class. So he sort of sidesteps, I would say, uh, D.L. Jacobs' provocation to some extent. Right. It's it's almost as if the state would have to first step in before civil social organizing might happen. Yeah. Reminds me of the Lasallian socialists that talked about the mediating role of the state in building like working cooperatives, for example, right? So that the state would have a role to play in building what they understood as working class power. And so there's something there about it, but it seems like it's, it, I, I think it's below the level of, of a kind of Lasallian socialism because he imagines that the Democratic Party, 
even though it's, as he calls it, a corporate party, um, is going to be uh, a meaningful vehicle through which these things happen, whereas the Lasallians were trying to build independent parties in the U.S., I should say. That's right. You know, speaking of the Democratic Party, you know, he brings up some numbers, uh, you know, in order to dismiss um, the idea that discontented workers might also be Republicans, etc. Yeah, right. He says the, the notion that the Republican Party is becoming more of a working class party is a gross exaggeration. It's true that the working class votes for the Democrats are shrinking, but most of them are not going over to the Republicans. They're becoming independents. And this is when D.L. Jacobs says, okay, so they're becoming independents. Like, isn't that a potential opening, right? In fact, uh, to not anchor them back to the Democratic Party. But his response, Schibber's response to that is that, well, if that's what you think it takes to have a successful third party, you would be wrong, right? Which Danny agrees, that's not the only thing it takes, right? But it's something to, to build on. But he goes back to this problem. I mean, this is, I think, where it's introduced in the interview, in fact, that what you have with these Marxist parties and the Second International, like what they could take for granted is an organized working class. And the reason for that base is, he says, they maintained that base by virtue of the fact that they weren't just electoral parties, right, the parties of the Second International. They either were offshoots and creations of trade unions, or they were parties that created the trade unions. And the parties were able to mobilize the class in a way that is just not possible for the left today. So for Schibber, the fact that the Democratic Party is, quote unquote, like a middle class party, at some points he, he seems to present it in this way, means that you have to win large sections of the middle class in order to gain tactical advantages for the working class. And that's the dance that the DSA is tasked with, according to Schibber, um, where has to maintain some level of focus that what they are doing is building some kind of working class autonomy. But maybe we could get into like that imagination because the 70s, the 1970s seems to loom pretty large here. Uh, for our listeners, maybe some of these terms are new, but D.L. Jacobs brings up salting, which happens in this period in the 1970s after a kind of disillusion, defeat of the new left. And this is when students went to the factories, became part of the workforce in order to organize workers, right? This kind of direct relationship to the working class. And essentially, Schibber seems to be advocating for this en masse, right? He's saying that it's happening right now, but not at the scale that it needs to. That's right. And speaking of, of just like the, the greater long durée imagination, uh, I just wanted to point out like an opening, the first thing that Chibber says in, uh, in the interview. So Jacobs asks, how do you understand the moment for the left, especially with regard to the 2010s and going forward? And Shiver says, it's a moment when the left is coming out of its utter marginalization and it is getting some mainstream legitimacy and traction, due in some measure to social movements that have gotten off, 
off the ground in the last 10 years or so. Mm -hmm. But it is primarily due to the Bernie Sanders candidacy, which made socialism and democratic socialism something part of the mainstream political discourse and gave it a kind of respectability. Mm -hmm. This reminds me of um, the DSA, you know, has various little caucuses within it. And one of them is, is called the Marxist Unity Group. And they just recently published their, um, I guess you could call it a, a kind of platform, you know, certain things that they've come to agree on. And in there, you'll also find this language of mm-hmm. 12, 13 years of, of progress, of, of something building and something growing. And I'm not, you know, I'm not so sure about that. Platypus in, has been around for that entire period if not long, if not a few years longer. And I don't think we've seen 15, 16 years of the growth of a left. That's right. And so I think he characterizes the millennial left as a period of ascendance. And right after the bit that you read, which is at the very beginning of the interview, he says that the left is still marginal in American culture. While the discourse in the language of socialism is no longer taboo, there is little actual organizer on the ground by socialists, even though they're establishing a beachhead within the working class. They are still isolated from the working class, essentially, he's saying. But so the discourse and the language of socialism is no longer taboo, which for him creates some kind of opening. You know, the interesting thing is that in the Jacoby review of Chibber, he kind of points to the absence of culture, ideology, political imagination in his conception of agency and transformation. And it's interesting that in the characterization of ascendance, the left ascendance, it's what he's talking about here is a kind of social imagination that allows for the word socialism, right? We've heard this like around the Bernie campaign to quote unquote, not be taboo anymore. Of course, the socialists, uh, which perhaps include Shiver, do make things taboo themselves, right? Um, like Danny raising this issue of the dictatorship of the proletariat, of the abolition of wages, thinks that for second international Marxists would have not been ultra-leftism, but a matter of uh, the end goal, the historical goal, um, you know, which is why, which is why D.L. Jacobs brings up Rosa Luxemburg. And the historical goal. I just thought it was an interesting tension that um, he seems to be very focused on the structural analysis, right? That's what he thinks that intellectuals ought to be doing, the structural analysis of how the abstract uh, force of capital manifests um, in the more specific politics of where you're situated as a leftist. Right, and... and- I mean, one one thing interesting uh, that Jacoby notes is is speaking of you know taboos and taboos going away. One of the things that Shiver seems to want to do is introduce new language. Um, so instead of class consciousness, for example, he'll have his own terms. Class formation. That's mm-hmm. that's right. So going back to this this interview real quick. Speaking of of the subjective factor, you might call it. D.L. Jacobs, you know, uh, makes a point on on this on page one here that there is an interpenetration of subjective and objective when it comes to the phenomenon of class, uh, which 
Chibber is very quick to uh, correct and say, saying that ideology plays a part in the uh, recreation of reality, I guess, uh, saying that it, it's in the constitution of that structure is too strong. The constitution of the structure is maintained by the imperatives and constraints that people face. There's this, uh, as you were saying, the, uh, a sense of, um, of structures creating things, which in part, you know, ask the question, why, why organize it all? Um, maybe, that's, that, maybe that's a bit glib to say it that way. He wants to organize the working class because he believes if they could assert their interests together, collectively, they could challenge capital. However, the mediating factor of how the working class understands capitalism, or even how they understand themselves as a class, um, he doesn't really have an explanation of why this hasn't happened. Because even in his conception of what goes wrong on the left, it seems like the danger for him is in leaving behind the working class, right? So the, the problem is that the left forgets this lesson and moves away from the working class into the universities. And so it needs to relearn the lesson, which he believes the 1970s understood. Oh, we just need to go back um, and, and sort of pick up where we left off. In terms of the mediating ideology or the kind of problem of historical consciousness of the left and its end goal, I guess it's a non-issue for, for Shiver. I really appreciated Jacoby's review. Uh, it is very spicy, as I said. Like there's, you know, there's a kind of crankiness to it. But he takes him up as an intellectual. He takes Shiver up like what's the sort of logical unfolding of your argument. And he ends his book review um, by quoting directly from the book, trying to figure out where does class quote unquote formation, right? What the more traditional Marxists would have called the emergence of a class consciousness. Like, where does it come from? And he quotes Schiber saying, it seems plausible to imagine that the culture of resistance fostered by the structural and institutional setting in the early 20th century also fostered the political organizations that gave it shape and direction. So Jacoby notes, okay, so now for the first time, you've got this cultural of resistance, which shows up. So what happened to the resignation, the ringing conclusion? And he quotes Schiber. Thus, the class matrix today constraints and shapes the political terrain as much as it did a century ago, but in ways that differ substantially from the earlier period. Jacoby is cranky about it, but I think he's got a point, which is that Schiber kind of pins himself into a corner when he's talking about why it didn't happen in the 20th century, why do you have this problem? Why didn't the working class affirm its sort of structural relationship to capital and demand a politics that could challenge capital? When it comes to transformation or change, he just relies on contingency. But as you just pointed out in that opening to the interview, he actually says that the reason why today is an opportunity is because in the political imagination, of, I guess, millennial socialists, the Bernie campaign has allowed socialism no longer to be a dirty word anymore. The Bernie campaign has created a kind of interest and curiosity about socialism, despite the left not being really connected to the working class. But he sees that as an opening. That's right. The Jacoby book review is also interesting because he, he notes that Chibber ends up recreating a kind of 
a, a way of speaking that is is very much like the cultural term that he's uh, disagreeing with, that Chibber's disagreeing with. Jacoby writes, it, it is here that Chibber's embrace of seminar theorizing is weakest. He wants to defend the reality of class and explain an absent revolutionary working class without the taint of culture. So again, like without this idea that, or without the taint of culture, but also without like the subjective, I'm not exactly sure. I don't mean to pigeonhole Chibber here. Well, no, that seems to be the general disagreement between Jacoby and Shiver. So Jacoby points out that Shiver avoids class consciousness like the plague, quote, because it suggests cultural and subjectivity. Mm-hmm. So his preferred terms, Shiver's preferred term is class formation, which you do see in the academy. Sean Willent is another historian that will use this term. There are several people that have sort of taken up this term. For Jacoby, this is a problem because it melts class and class consciousness into one confusing entity, quote unquote. One might even say just the kind of old Marxist dictum about, you know, the class in itself and for itself, right? Like where politics is located in constituting oneself as a class consciously. That's right. So class formation for Schiber like confuses things that he then doesn't have to explain. You know, trying to understand the disagreement between the two of them, uh, I think is fruitful insofar as it helps us understand the limits of a kind of present um, left understanding of what is to be done. It's interesting that Jacoby goes back to Lenin and he quotes Lenin's what is to be done. And he just says, well, perhaps Lenin in 1902 put it more sharply where he said, everyone agrees that it's necessary to develop the political consciousness of the working class. The question is how that is to be done and what is required to do it. That's right. Uh, going back to something I said earlier, you know, like why does the working class need political leadership and why, why the workers, why the working class? The non-identity of the working class as a class in itself and a class for itself necessitates a party in order to learn from these immediate experiences and see uh, in the long term. I could imagine Shiver responding to what you've just said, Lou, as, okay, you're, you're, you have this imaginary party, the deus ex machina, that's going to come from nowhere and it's going to take whatever is present in terms of class formation and turn it into a struggle for the dictatorship of the proletariat. That's all well and good, he would say, but that to me just sounds like a lot of ultra-leftism. And so we're interested in building the quote-unquote organizations of the working class. And I think Danny underlining the issue of the who, of like how the subject is being constituted that can transform society, I think that's the Marxist response to Schiber, or maybe just to put it more humbly, Platypus's response to this problem. So what's the, the obstacles, the historical obstacles for the realization of socialist politics appear as a non-issue for Schiber in part because of this problem of ideology, which he believes is a quote-unquote reflex of structure. Mm-hmm. It's, it's important to, to remember that class consciousness, in the way we've been talking about it, means historical consciousness. Uh, so in that sense, knowing that oneself is a worker is not really class consciousness. And regarding you know, the, the organization of, of workers and the, their expressions of their discontents, to be a bit provocative, one might say that capitalism is and has been 
the the expression of discontents of workers, right? That through the very dis, their very discontents with the world, you know, new forms of of labor are are new forms of capital, etc., are, are created, new forms of life, mm-hmm. and that it yeah it matters that who does it, right? Because in a sense, um, the welfare state and major companies are organizing the working class, right? Like literally like having them, you know, come into work here, you work there, but it matters who, it matters who, who does it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe as a link here with the interview with Enzo Traverso to, yeah. um, what people's appetite for it. So you can take a look. I think one of the things that Platypus does very well is getting a sense of the history of the left through a biography of a leftist when people are open to that kind of work of reflection, how they came to the left, what were the organizations that helped to solidify their understanding of what is to be done? What were the historical moments that changed the horizons of possibility? And Enzo Traverso just allows all of that. um, He just entertains all of those questions, I think, quite thoughtfully in the interview. Um, We move from the 1970s to a greater focus in the 1980s, which he calls a period of shift of a complete reimagining and disorientation of the left in ways that in the 1970s they could not have foreseen. He speaks of the 70s and the 80s until maybe more or less 1989, at least among the Italian left, as a time when there were hopes that a revolution was still possible and that you had these struggles in Latin America and that the confrontation was imminent and that all of this is questioned in 1989. Exactly. Um, He says something like, we realized in, in 89 that an entire historical cycle had been completed. That's right. And he's using Hobsbawm's periodization of the short 20th century to give a sense of the cycle that he's discussing from the, from the period of the, the Russian revolution of 1917 as a marker until 1989. So that's, that's the quote unquote cycle that he's referring to and that rethinking the revolution after 1989, he says, quote, Rethinking revolution in the 21st century means rethinking the social subjects of this revolutionary process. This was a huge task, and I'm not sure that my generation was able to satisfactorily answer this challenge. The end of the 1980s is a historical turn in which all must be rethought. And I think there's a connection there between the Shiber and the interview with Traverso this problem of the subject of history after the defeat of the Russian Revolution and the continuing defeats of the 20th century um, that, you know, Shiver is answering for us in one way, at least in the interview. Uh, Traversa seems to be slightly more humble about the prospects of transformation, uh, or at least maybe I'm being unfair to Shiver, but he's, he doesn't seem to believe that we can just go back to the 1970s and recover 
a revolutionary strategy and that one has to rethink the entire history of the left anew. Mm -hmm. Speaking of dealing with the aftermath of the failed world revolution, uh, Theodore Adorno is brought up by uh, Noah Spohr in this interview to speak about um, just this, you know, the, um, the liquidation of Marxist theory by dogmatization and thought taboos contributed to the bad practice. I, I bring this up, I bring up Adorno in particular uh, because an interesting thing happens in this interview and in the previous issues interview with uh, the scholar Peter E. Gordon, which is that both of them, they, they like the Frankfurt School, but they're both a little suspicious of Adorno. They don't like, mm. they don't like that Adorno, Adorno is not so sanguine about the ability to just be a Marxist, to pick up, you know, to, to, to continue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think that's, that would be fair. Traversa would agree. I mean, so for example, he says he, he's not so sure about Adorno's melancholy science, right? Um, that being a play on, play on words of Nietzsche's gay science. The point being that, that the object of critique has been lost for, for Adorno for the 20th century. He's a bigger fan. Traverso is a bigger fan of, of Walter Benjamin. So that's brought up a little bit, especially his concept of uh, now time. I'm always suspicious of pinning Benjamin against Adorno. Of course. And one thing that is ripe for the picking is Traverso bringing up Adorno calling the cops on his students. Right. Right, like this this issue. And the exchange between Adorno and Marcuse, which we read in the reading group. So if you're interested in that exchange, we go into it. And the question of the new left as the possibility for change as an opening or as a further degradation and undermining of the possibility of socialism. And it seems like for Traverso, that incident shows that Adorno is close to the possibility that there can be a new agent for, for change, right? This like issue of looking, looking for agency out there, uh, looking for what is moving perhaps um, in, a, in a more kind of cliffite tradition like what's the movements that are ongoing, what's what's happening. And and Adorno, as a negative thinker, raising a critical point, is it moving in the right direction, right? Like what's the, what's the direction of the transformation? And he seems to be discouraged by Adorno's negative take. He says at one point that, one of the problems with the Frankfurt School is that it didn't understand the post-colonial struggles as a reemergence of a movement for socialism, uh, or perhaps maybe he would put it not as a movement of socialism, but as a movement that can be shaped in the direction of socialism. And that, to me, sounds like for Traverso, the 20th century as he puts it, was the ebbs and flow of the possibility for socialism. He thinks that there are these ups and downs rather than a problem of regression deepening. And in that, I think he does have a disagreement with Adorno about how regression and the accumulation of regression um, weighs like a nightmare on the present. I think Traverso sees the 20th century as one of possibility, defeat, yes. and openings and, and defeat, but in a profound way, 
in a way that when things are moving, that there's always this possibility for socialist politics, whereas Adorno, at least by the 1960s, recognized that perhaps the movement was moving against the possibility or was becoming an obstacle to the left in the long term. That's right. Traverso's usage of the word, like, or the phrase historical cycle, there is, you know, not to, not to read too much into it, but it's a bit indicative of the idea that there simply would be another one, another go at this, you know, um, whereas, you know, compared to uh, Adorno's point of the, the idea of regression at all and deepening regression. Yeah, maybe we can um, sort of end with this issue of how to imagine history, which he brings up, right? He gives some thoughtful comments about what it means for the left to consider its own, its own history. Memory, he says, is a process of selection and memory is permanently changing our view of the past because we put different questions to the past and our gaze towards the past changes. This means that memory is the outcome of a process of selection of events, recollections, experiences made in the past which are useful and become meaningful according to our needs in the present and to our projects for the future. I thought he put it in a curious way um, that without the idea of futurity, a kind of left futurity, um, the left cannot engender a new memory of the past. And it, it was curious to me because it seemed to put the cart before the horse. It seems that to have and to imagine a different future, one would have to imagine the, the history of the left in such a way as to give the present a future other than just the repetition of regression. And so it struck a chord with what we do in terms of our work in Platypus, posing the questions of the past that can give us a better sense of what's possible. Exactly. The talk of, of futurity, I don't know, sounds nice. Um, I, don't, I don't mean to just like, just disagree, but I, I don't know. One's theory of the future is one's theory of the present, which is really one's theory of the past, right? <laughs> That's a, a silly way to put it, but maybe it's also a kind of roundabout way of answering what to, what's to be done with the 20th century, right? I don't know. Look to the future. Uh, don't be melancholic about the German Revolution. Yeah, it's a funny thing, and uh, agree. I, I definitely agree with you about it's. It's strange to counterpose uh, Walter Benjamin uh, to Adorno, and then especially regarding the con this concept of Yetzite, which is it's now time, but it's it's about the past. Yeah, that was a strange kind of curveball at the end there about the futurity. The work of making that future possible includes theorizing the present as the outcome of a history and trying to understand why the left stands as it is today as a non-agent as a dead object like why why is that um and maybe just tying back to our conversation with shiver we have to take into account why were the 1970s unable to give us the revolution? And if it went wrong somehow, then we have to be able to explain to ourselves in order to learn from the lessons of the past, which is what the party used to do. But now 
we're left, we're orphaned, <laughs> um, as Traverse has said, from that historical consciousness. And we have to make sense of it in a more fragmented way through the ruins of the left and whatever consciousness we can squeeze out of people um, mm -hmm. like we do in the review. Yeah. We'll end it there. Thank you, Lou, for all the work that you do for the Platypus Review. Everyone and anyone listening to the segment can check out all of the articles that we've discussed and those that we have not on the platypus1917.org. If you'd like to contribute to the Platypus Review, how can our listeners do that? Submissions should be sent to editor.platypusreview at gmail.com. Great. We welcome any and all submissions. If you'd like to respond to the articles, uh, we have a tradition of doing that as well. And we look forward to the next February issue. Thanks, Lou, for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Bye. Bye. This has been a production of the Platypus Affiliated Society, featuring original tracks by Thomas Villaggi. Platypus is an international membership-based organization that hosts reading groups, public fora, research, and journalism focused on problems and tasks inherited from the old, new, and post-political left for the possibilities of emancipatory politics today. Platypus also publishes articles by thinkers and activists on the left in the monthly publication, The Platypus Review. To contact, learn more about Platypus, or to access the entire archive of Platypus reviews and panel recordings, please visit us online at platypus1917.org. That's the word platypus, followed by the numerals 1917.org. Bye!
Thank <laughs> you.